Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Today, we're diving into all things friends with the best-selling author of Friendship, Lydia Denworth. We're going to talk about the health benefits of friends, what it means to be a quality friend, how many friends you need, and how to maintain social connections in the age of social distancing due to coronavirus. Not to mention kids, friendship, and adolescence, and what goes on in the developing brain. We all have friends, we all need friends, and we're going to go deep on friends today. Lydia, welcome. So great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, congrats on the book, Friendship. And I can't help but think about friendship in 2020 in the context of coronavirus and what that means we we must start there so <laughs> we must start what, there. what does it mean well you know the whole premise of the book and the and the new science of friendship is about how important friendship and social connection is for our health and we're going to talk about that in a little bit and it, it is critical but so what i think is really important in this moment of coronavirus is we're talking about social distancing, and we do need to do that. That's 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 correct. Uh, but what we can do is we don't need to lose sight of the importance of friends. In fact, a willingness to help each other and show up in times of need is really one of the fundamental characteristics of a, of a good friendship. And so what we need to do is think a little more creatively and think a little harder about how to help and how to interact. So showing up on Skype, FaceTime, all good. Yeah, well, right. This is going to be a moment to embrace digital friendship. Like, uh, you know, we, we, I mean, I've been having this conversation for a couple months now about social media, but it's suddenly going to come into its own in a major way. Yeah. It's just, you know, having been here during 9-11, and I, I remember that, you know, that day and, and, and the surrounding days vividly, you know, everyone was out, bars were packed, restaurants were packed, people were hugging, every, everyone was you know, sticking together, and yet there was just so much uncertainty and anxiety. And this, there is that level of uncertainty and anxiety here, but completely different. Right. You're being told not to seek comfort with your friends. And that is so it's the antithesis of what we as as humans do in a time of crisis. And so what I hope people will do is and what I am starting to see, for instance, on social media is I have one friend in particular who's been very good about kind of getting people thinking about how to help each other or like let's say i mean here in new york you know you you might have an elderly neighbor who can't shop um, for themselves very easily so she's suggesting you go out you know you you pay attention you notice first of all that 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 neighbor might not be you know might need help and then you can go do the shopping you could leave it at their front door right you don't have to so there are ways to help there are ways to interact i'm reminded of my kids you know, during the Fortnite craze, how social that was. And I'm thinking that adults might just take, you know, take lessons from some of our kids and that why don't we have some like virtual watch parties or something, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's ways to just purely have fun online or to connect or to send each other, you know, lists of books to read or recipes to cook or things like that. Just a way of kind of feeling like we're in it together. And then there's ways, there's people who really need help and and that we should be looking for that. We should be noticing that some of us, our lives are going to be much more disrupted than other people's. And I think being aware, even just sort of acknowledging, saying, oh, you know, I just realized how this must be affecting you is really meaningful to, to friends. 
And so one of the things I love about this book is you really dive into the science and you take something like friendship, you know, we all have friends <laughs> and, and you really get into the, the how and the why. It's something I never really thought about. So let's start with the, like the how and the why and what the science says. This is why I wanted to write this book is exactly this. I feel like the importance of friendship has been hiding in plain sight. Like there's all this stuff that we know about it. We think we know everything about it. It's so familiar and we think we appreciate it fully. But it turns out that there is this new science about the biology and the evolutionary story behind friendship that really is quite new. It's the last kind of 10 to 20 years primarily. And, and that tells us something entirely different um, about friendship than, than what we thought. It's not just cultural. You know, it gets down into our bodies, it changes our health, it changes our biology, and it changes the trajectory of our lives. And so that's the, the how and why. That's actually how evolutionary biologists and, and neuroscientists think about this. So how is, you know, the day-to-day the, the -day interactions, the fact that we are so primed to look at faces, for instance, so our brain is really socially oriented and our auditory cortex and the way we listen to language and things like that and what that does in our in our brain and how it triggers the sort of social other social parts of our brain that's some of the how that's just a little bit of the how you could also get into questions like you know um, how how is it that we meet each other and things like that but then the why is like but why are we driven to do these things like if you get past the sort of the day-to-day -day biology of it or the, the way our bodies and our brains are set up to do it, then you've got to say, well, and why? <laughs> On a much deeper, more fundamental level, why are we driven to connect so much? Why do you so rarely find a human being entirely alone for great stretches of time? And it, it turns out to be because that's a terrible idea <laughs> for humans. I mean, we don't do well if we're alone. And you never saw that in in you know in ancient times and everybody was in groups and we had to learn how to exist in groups and it turned out that the people who did better at that at navigating the complexities of a social environment did better in the long term that that, that was a sort of evolutionary advantage um, to be good at making friends essentially um, you know gave you gave you a head start on a lot of things it's not and so so now we understand and then it helped too that we saw it in other species in other animals and that we recognized for a long time there was this sense that friendship was a purely human phenomenon but it turns out it's not and knowing that is part of what tells us that there's this deeper evolutionary story and a, a more universal story to friendship something you talk about in the book eye contact yeah. What, what happens when we make eye contact? Eye contact is about priming the social brain, essentially. It, it, tr it, it activates the parts of the brain that are good at communicating, that are thinking about how another person is perceiving the world, which is generally known as theory of mind. And, and so, yeah, eye contact sort of starts it all running, I guess you could say. And so I'm curious with eye contact. So in the age of you know, we were just talking about Skype and FaceTime. Is it better to have a connection with someone on FaceTime than it is purely audio on, on the old school phone? So there are differences. There appear to be differences there. This is really brand new science, and they're just beginning to, to understand it. But And I, I'm sure we will find out more. But it seems that eye contact in person, so in real life, IRL. IRL in your brain looks one way, 
friend on Skype or a video chat looks a little different. Uh-huh. And then, you know, phone or email or something looks different again. So the best in terms of really priming the communication in social parts of the brain is the IRL in real life. Uh, but, um, but so yes, there are differences. Although, you know, I'm going to argue that Right now, when we're thinking, when we're worried about coronavirus, that Skype's going to be great. Right. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, this is important. Better than nothing. Um, and an important thing to do if somebody's isolated. But, but yes, there's, there, there are actual differences in the way our brains perceive faces in all of those different kinds of parameters. Well, you also get into the why. And, you know, I, I think it's so interesting. We talk about you know, health benefits of every possible food we could possibly eat, diet, meditation, exercise, all these things. But I love that we're talking about friendship. And you say in the book, it's key to, you know, it was key to survival and reproduction. Yeah, exactly. No, this is the thing that I think is just so, it's the part that's counterintuitive about this. I mean, we all know that friendship feels, feels good. It's pleasurable. uh, But but the idea that a social relationship that exists entirely outside of the body could have such an effect on your health and biology in the same way that diet and exercise do. I mean, it is as important. Friendship is as important as diet and exercise for your health. More important, really, in some levels. And, you know, it makes perfect sense that what you eat, it goes into your body. So you can understand why that would affect your biology. Or if you're running or something, you're, you're getting your heart rate going, you're moving your muscles. That's, that's more obvious. So social relationships turn out to have the same power, even though they are outside of the body entirely. So how do you define friendship in 2020? You know, I think of social media, I think of, you know, having thousands of friends, I think of, we've talked about Dunbar's here and IRL friends and what types of friends, how do you define friendship? Well, so I am using the, I think it's really helpful that that all these different kinds of scientists have now been approaching this in this much more serious way. And defining friendship was one of the places they had to start because it's one of the things scientists need. They need to be able to define and to measure something in order to study it, really, because you need to compare variables and outcomes. And and so at its simplest, the definition of friendship is a relationship that has just three things. It's long-lasting, meaning it's stable and it's reliable over time. It's positive, so it makes both individuals feel good. And it is cooperative. It's got reciprocity to it, so a give and take, right? And that's true in humans, and it's true in baboons, and it's true in other kinds of species. I mean, there's limits past mammals, but um, but so, and a, fr- a human friendship can have a whole lot more than that, but it does, it, it turns out that if you just keep looking for those things, you, you do sort of see, oh, well, you know what, you know, this, this, a relationship, for instance, that doesn't always make you feel good might well, not be such a good I, friendship. I, I, I love that you mentioned that, points two and three, when you talk about reciprocity and relationships that make you feel good, because something we've talked about here, toxic friendships, and, and just, we all have them. There are friends where, you know, the moment you connect, they start complaining, and they look like, you got to share, and that's right. part of being a good friend, is being is. a good listener. It is. But if it just becomes a consistent conversation. If it's lopsided, right? If it's just always, always, always on one person. And yeah, there are people who just have a really negative outlook on life, you know, and and you start to notice that after a while. You think, gee, 
every time I talk to her, it's just all, you know, negative, 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 negative. Or they're, or they're nasty to you or they're, yeah, they're demanding. A word that's been coming up a lot in my talking about this is draining. Yes. <laughs> that I think we all have some friends who are draining. And family. And family, <sighs> and family. And um, so, yeah, it turns out that, you know, positive relationships are really good for your biology and toxic relationships, truly negative relationships are truly bad for your biology. They, they increase your stress responses, they elevate your blood pressure, they um, increase depression levels, and they even affect how your immune system operates. Any advice for people on how to extract themselves from a toxic friendship? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's obviously easy for me to say, <laughs> <laughs> to sit here and give simple advice. But I do think that essentially you have a couple of choices. One is that, you know, there are some people that really, if I mean, if it's truly toxic, I think, you know, you have a reason to not hang out with that person. I mean, tr to really consider ending that friendship and that you don't have to be beholden to someone just because they've been in your life if if they're not giving you some positive benefit. Um, or you can work to make it better, right? I mean, so sometimes with friendships, we just kind of put up with the way it is without mm -hmm. trying to have a hard conversation. Um, and if you're thinking you might get rid of this friendship anyway, why not give it a shot <laughs> with a conversation, you know, because um, you might be pleasantly surprised that that you could go a little deeper um, and and get in especially if you don't feel like you have that much to lose and then the last way to go is what I call sort of shuffling the furniture of your friendships so you know maybe that person doesn't have to be as close in it's like you mm -hmm. you know maybe you move slowly, that armchair to the yeah. distant sitting room or something like that you know you slowly put them out in 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 the circles of people with whom you spend less time so there is an interesting study in the book, I think it was a Kansas University study mm -hmm. where it said it takes 200 hours to be a best friend. A best friend, yeah. Wasn't that fascinating? I mean, who nobody had ever counted before. And this this researcher, Jeff Hall, at the University of Kansas, he, he had this idea to do this, and he did it both with students who were new to the campus, and so he had them kind of pay report on the people they met right at the beginning and then how much time they spent with them and how, how they're definitions of the relationship changed over time. And he also did it with adults who had moved to a new city for a job, right? And so in all those cases, essentially what he got were these cut points and that it took about 50 hours to go from being an acquaintance to a friend, casual friend, and then maybe 90 hours to be a good friend. And yeah, 200 hours to consider somebody a best friend. And the thing about that, I've, it's funny, I get different so some people think that seems like a lot of time, and other people think it doesn't seem like that much time. For a busy adult, 200 hours is a lot of time. It right? is, and it could oh, take it years. Is. Yeah, it could take years. It would. If you're a college student and you're in the same class with somebody for a semester and you and you live in the same dorm, 50 hours, you know. Happen in a week. <laughs> exactly. You're a there. A couple days. A couple days. I mean, and so that that is, you know, that explains a lot, right, about how much more time you have for friends when you're younger. But also, I think what it really tells us about is that friendship is something you need to invest in. You need to understand it as, as a, a time. It, it, it does take time, right? But it's worth your time. I mean, people are the best use of your time if they're going to end up giving you these good, strong you know, benefits. So, of so how do we invest in friendship? How do we all become better friends? Partly just by beginning to 
think about what it is to be a good friend, right? Which I, I do think that friendship is something we take for granted a little bit. And we probably think some of us might think we're better at it than we actually are, you know? <laughs> um, it's, it is about, so let's take the positive piece, right? Um, how much do you go out of your way to make your friends feel good? Or how often do you tell them? that you appreciate them or do something nice for them and vice versa. Do you have some friends who are really thoughtful and make you feel good? You know, um, one of the things that I do is I try to notice the things I appreciate that other people do for me. And then I try to be mindful of doing the same because not all of those things would be the first thing that would occur to me. Right. Or on the reciprocity piece in the cooperation you know, really, really be mindful. It doesn't have to be like a tit for tat accounting. Well, you had me over for sure. dinner, so now I'm going to have you over for dinner. I mean, there is an element of that because if it's always the same person hosting everything, that's not great. If it's always so, just try to be mindful of you know um, where where are we on this and how you know there are going to be times in life where one person is really in crisis and needs a lot more help and attention, and that's exactly what friendship is for. You know, at its base, friendship is about preparing us to weather the stresses of day-to-day -day life, right? Back on the African savanna, that looks like a lion or a leopard, right? Here in New York, it's different. <laughs> it's Very like, different. you know, it's a crowded subway, but there are still lions in New York, you know, that just look different. Um, and so so are you, are you showing up for your friends? Are you noticing what's going on in their lives and just acknowledging it? Are you, and showing up can mean all kinds of things. It can mean actually showing up to dinner when you said you would and not canceling on them endlessly. <laughs> it can mean showing up for a birthday party or it can mean showing up for you know, a parent's funeral, which I happen to think is really important. When I lost my dad, it was really meaningful to me the, that friends of mine, who most of whom knew him, but not everybody did, but you know that they traveled a distance to be there for me to acknowledge that this was this major thing going on in my life and that m the world had changed. And so showing up can be very literal or it can mean, you know, just sending a text when you know somebody's got a big presentation or something at work and saying, hey, I'm thinking of you, you know, that kind of thing goes such a long way. And I think that um, some people are really good at it. And some of us, it's just so easy to get caught up in our own lives. I, I, huge fan of showing up, I think, in this day and age. I, look, difficult conversations are difficult for a lot of people, and especially in this day and age. Yeah. And showing up great example you know i remember i lost my father in my teens i you know to this day i remember who showed up to the funeral no judgment on who didn't go but and especially I, you, you appreciate then, it they might not have known yeah. how important it would be you but know if you they also, were young but especially you do with appreciate it funerals and grieving and yeah. tough conversations oftentimes people don't know what to say they don't and it's okay and i think just showing up i think they need to know that that just listening too right yeah. don't even feel that or even say yeah I don't know what to say. I just know I want to be here for you. And a funeral being an extreme example, but other examples in life, just like showing up is a big, you don't even have to say anything. Yeah. Just I'm here. I think that's really true. And um, I, it, that certainly goes a long way for me with my friends. And uh, and there are all kinds of ways to, to think about that. I mean, it's certainly true when you have... Um, when you have young kids and you're friends with other parents, I, I think that there's so much that you can do for each other. And you don't have to assume that nobody else wants to help. Like, you know, I think that if we, if we go about um, our lives kind of putting ourselves out there a little bit for, on the friendship front and, and, um, and offering to help, you know, we, we will be pleasantly surprised by how many people meet us there. 
And so we talked a little bit about quality. Let's go to quantity. Yeah. How many friends do I need? And at least from my perspective, being in my mid-40s now, the number of friends I has definitely changed from <laughs> teens and 20s to where I sit today. You mean you don't have 200 hours to devote? I, I, <laughs> I I wish I did. Yes, I, wish I, I know. Did. No, this is absolutely true. And it is, so there's no magic number of friends that you have to have. And in fact, for your biology, what's really interesting is that the true difference, the step change, the biggest step change is from zero to one. So if you've got one friend, you are so much better off than if you really don't have any. Uh, and a lot of people just prefer to have one or two really good friends and that's who they spend. And, and they're okay if they do that. For most of us, if you think of your social life as a series of concentric circles, which is the, an analogy that a lot of researchers have used for this, uh, there's an average of about four people in our inner circle. And that's often split, family and friends. You know, a lot depends on your own situation. Uh, but the point for me is that actually it has less to do whether whether it's family, whether it's friends, and more to do with whether it meets that definition we just gave of friendship, where those are these long-lasting strong bonds where they, people make you feel good and you know they're there for you if you need them. That's who you need in your inner circle, right? And, uh, and if that's your sibling that does that for you, terrific, but maybe not. And so maybe it's all really good friends that are not related to you. Um, hopefully it's your spouse. Most of us, if we're married or, you know, it, that, that person is in there. But so, and, you know, the, I think it's interesting that the circle is so small, actually, that that inner circle is so small. But that doesn't mean that it's also not beneficial to have larger numbers of friends. Um, and diversity of friendship can actually <laughs> turns out to protect you from the common cold. Like if you have more different kinds of social people that you interact with, you are much less likely to get sick, um, not only for host resistance reasons, but, but also apparently they think that, you know, psychologically there's something that that's doing for you, that knowing that there's social support out there. And, um, and there's probably ways it's helping that we don't even understand yet. Uh, so no magic number quality matters more than quantity but quantity is not unimportant so people will often say you're the combination of the five people you spend the most time with do, <laughs> do you buy that cliche, cliche <laughs> um i think that that's probably there's something to it partly because one of the things we do especially if we have more than one or two really good friends is that we often get something different from different people in our lives. So there's, you know, people that um, we turn to, like if, let's say you're, you have, are prone to anxiety, you're less likely to want to turn to your equally anxious friend because she's just going to rev you sure. up, right? Or you're, you know, um, and so like in my case, I have friends who are writers who I get a lot from because I can really talk about work in a different way with them than I can other people. And so, so there's a psychologist actually called this emotionships that, you know, we have different friendships for different emotions in a way or that different different people serve different needs. So if you think about it that way, I suppose you could say that you know, that your closest circle are these different pieces of you. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what that cliche was meant to describe, but um, but you it is also true that friendship really is based often in similarity. Um, 
in a lot of different ways, but so that we do tend to be more well, better friends with people who are more like us. Isn't there a little bit of a rub there? Because you also we talk about diversity and diversity of yes. thought, and then confirmation bias develops, and then we sort of run into the problem, which what's what's happening in America right <laughs> exactly. now, politically yes. or whatever. Yes. We no, hang around it's all... very true. We hang around the people who see the world the way we do. Um, I think, I hope that the answer there is to kind of acknowledge it, to recognize it, but and then to know that there are. There are benefits we get, clearly, from being friends with people who are not exactly like us. Um, and some of us are more open to that than others. And in fact, it turns out that if you take the, the personality characteristics, you know, the big five, so openness is one of them, and, uh, and people who score high on the openness scale are much more likely to have friends, both who live yeah, what are the big five? I uh, see. I was afraid you're going to ask me to <laughs> name them: neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness. I think. Okay. Um, and so, but each one is a is a um, is a continuum, right? From so from neuroticism, for instance, would be all the way, you know, neuroticism at one end and kind of, you know, unflappable <laughs> at the other, uh, and openness versus, you know, sort of more rigid. Uh, and so people who score high on the, highly on the openness scale tend to have more friends who live further away from them, who are of different ages, different generations, or different races. Uh, and so, you know, and people who Obviously, the reverse is true, or people who um, are more introverted often have friends sort of nearby. And the, the traditional view of friendship is that it's people who are like you and who are nearby, literally physically nearby in geography and proximity. So what about, you know, let's say, for example, like a, a lot of New Yorkers or just people live in cities, they, you know, go stop at their local coffee shop every morning and maybe it's the same barista they say hello is how what, is that meaningful it yes it it has its it has a role to play especially if it is a pleasant if it's not a yeah so like, oh, know, not a not a nasty barista like, <laughs> who never gets your name right on the cup or whatever it is um or isn't is unfriendly but if it's a friendly person that you feel recognized by and that you have this sort of pleasant little interaction that is clearly a beneficial thing. And that the, the social network scientists who have looked at that do say that the more of those kind of positive interactions you have in your day, even if they're with people that you don't consider really friends, uh, that that is a, a beneficial thing. So that would make the case that people are probably happier in cities. <laughs> um it could. It could. It could also make the case, though, that if you live in a community, if you live in a smaller community, but where you um, where you feel like you get sort of affirmation from a lot of the people that you interact with, even if it's going to be fewer people, because even in a city, you are not necessarily having that kind of interaction with 100 people sure. that you're seeing. You're probably having it with, you know, five to 10 in your day. And, and in some rural, more rural communities, that's probably still possible. In others, not less likely. But um, so I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm okay. willing to go there. But you know, I am a lifelong city person, so I'm all for the city. But So we've talked about quantity. We've mm -hmm. talked about quality. What about gender? Gender, yes. Men versus women Men when it comes women. to friends, and how are we different? <laughs> well, I'll, I'd be curious to hear what you think. But you know, what I have found is that, first of all, there's a very clear stereotype that women do friendship face-to-face, -face, so they talk, 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 talk all the time. And men do friendship side by side. 
They mm. tend to do things together and sort of hang out together. Um, they might be wash, watch sports or do sports, or they sit on bar stools at the bar at the bar next to each other. You know, uh, and and there's truth to that stereotype, but it turns out that, and I think this is more interesting, really, is that when people have surveyed more recently and they've kind of looked, they've done meta-analyses where they take all the studies that have been done and they com- and they sort of combine them. What they're finding is that it, the similarities in how men and women think of friendship are much greater than the differences. And I think that's really an important point because right now, culturally, at least in America, we have a tendency to think that women are really great at friendship and men stink at friendship <laughs> men are duds in fact just on saturday live the other week i don't know if you saw this john mulaney the comedian was was the host and his monologue had to do with how men don't have any friends and that his you know his father's gen- generation they have their wives friends husbands which sure. is not the same thing as friends and that is our thing that is true that that the women tend to be the ones that sort of continue to build up the social life, and men often rely on their wives for that if they happen to be married. Um, but it turns out that men value friendship in the same way that women do, and that if they are pushed to self-disclose and to talk about their emotions or sort of the the things that have happened that are more intimate to them in their lives, they then feel closer to each other just in the way that women do as well. So what I hope is that we don't spend as much time kind of knocking the way men do friendship is if it is serving a purpose for them. And if they, if it's meeting their expectations, which it seems that it is, and they feel close to people, then, then that's, that's an important, that's an important thing. But I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) So for me personally, my wife, Colleen is way better at staying in touch with her friends from college. I'm terrible. However, I will say whenever we do get together, even though it's rare, I would say we're not, you know, I'm the ex stereotypical college athlete, right? (laughs) Not necessarily great communicators. However, I think we're we're quite good at showing up. And when I think the, the difference may be, at least in my experience is when we all show up, it's as like it was yesterday mm-hmm. and there's no, you know, why haven't you done this or that? And sometimes I'll see with, with Colleen, my wife, that there's maybe a little bit more pressure to, to be a good, to, 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 to have in behaved touch. in a certain way. Right. right. And no judgment. Mm-hmm. And she's actually quite good about keeping in touch with everyone. Right. And again, I start with like, I'm terrible. Mm-hmm. So my friend's listening. It's my fault, <laughs> but I'm in Dumbo. Come visit me. You know where I live. Nowhere to find me. Right. Um, and so, and I think for me, my personal experience with men, I think at least my group, good at showing up, like sh- would show up in droves and not good at the conversation piece. But like, I think, you know, when you said saddle up in a bar stool, that was very much the way we all operated. Yeah. And it's meaningful to you, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, when, you, totally. when you do it, right? Totally. And, and no but it's one, like it's yeah. like you're you're back into yesterday yeah, yeah, very yeah, quickly, yeah. even if years have passed. Right. And have you? But so other than so you mentioned college friends, but yeah. it isn't only college friends, right? Have you made other good friends? Sure, sure. Just in, not as not as intense. Not like, as intense. No, I, yeah. we we have some very we have some very very close friends. Right. Uh, we're actually maybe it's unique. You tell me if it's unique. We're husband and wife get along yeah. no, so we, we would have, say we're independently yeah, yeah. regardless right, of the right. marriage or we have one friends. family in particular where 
the wife and I are really, really close. And my husband and her husband are really close, independently good friends. And then the kids are all like, yeah, at we, different levels are all really good friends. My, we, we my ha- kids are older than yours. So, we, have, you know. we have a couple of those. We're, yeah. we're truly fortunate. That is a really lovely thing because then everybody wants to be together if you want to be together, but you still maintain the sort of individual connections in a different way. Too. Yeah, we realize that it's very unique because yeah. usually it's like... The wives yeah. get along, but the husbands right. are like, okay, well, what do we do? Let's have a beer together and pretend to watch sports. Yeah, exactly. Or, <laughs> or vice versa. The husbands want to get together and the wives don't really love each exactly. other. And so then it doesn't it doesn't work so well. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, husbands, wives, and kids. And so I thought this was fascinating. And being a parent of two little ones, a three-year-old, a nine-month, mm-hmm. a nine-month-old, kids, kids in school is very much on our minds, specifically to the, you know, Living in New York City. Yes. And you talk about, this was so powerful and it rang so true. Like middle school, so much starts to happen. And you're like, it's all about lunch. Yes. And I now I do give credit in the book. It was another mother who said that to me, whose kids were just a little bit ahead of mine. But when she did, it was as if I had like met the Oracle of Delphi. I was (laughs) like, that is the most profound thing I've heard. Because middle school is so much about finding your identity, figuring out who you want to be, and it's so much about the social scene, right? And and the time when kids have the most agency over their day is lunch in the cafeteria. And that's that's why, I mean, when as soon as you start to think about it, you think about all the movies and TV shows that have scenes of kids okay, standing eating there alone, with, it's eating alone, it's so heartbreaking, or like not knowing how to navigate socially the, the cafeteria. And so, you know, that's what that's all about. It's saying that, that that social interaction and that figuring out where you fit is so much of what middle school is all about. And so... What is, you know, what happens? You know, you said the difference between zero to one is enormous. And I think that's an important note mm-hmm. t- to make with regards to, because, you know, sometimes we tend to think of like, oh, I've got so many friends, but, you know, it's really about quality. And, and if you have one great friend, that's amazing. But let's talk about zero, like those kids, and it's just heartbreaking. You really don't, have, really have, don't have anything. Like, wh- yeah. wh- what is, the, you say, the dark side of not having any friends? Well, it is this feeling of, uh, I mean, loneliness is a serious, now we understand that loneliness is a serious public health problem. And so in a kid, it's going to take some time for that to to turn into biological changes. But what does happen is that, in fact, what they did was they said, okay, if a kid is lonely in sixth grade and doesn't have any friends, what happens in seventh grade and eighth grade? And what they found was that the kids were more likely then to feel kind of a sense of social threat in seventh grade, and then are more likely to have an increase in things like depression and anxiety by eighth grade. And it all stems from that not having any friends in sixth grade and feeling lonely. So maybe this is far reaching, but you know, I can't help to think of, you know, something again, top of mind as a parent now, it's, you know, sending our kids to school and school shootings. And Mm -hmm. I think about when I was a kid, there was no such thing. We had guns. We had mm-hmm. kids who were angry. We mm-hmm. had violence on TV. We had a yeah. lot of these things. Yeah. I'm trying to, what's the difference? So from your- You mean why are those shooters? What's happening? Yeah, what, what's, what's changed? And I know you're not an expert on, on this, but I'm just curious from your perspective, like what is, is it tied to the dark side of not having any friends and it being amplified or- 
Well, I mean, I do feel there are real limits to what I, you know, uh, how much speculating I can do. But on the other hand, it is seems very clear that the kids who are doing the shooting do yeah, not. They're not popular. They are not, not popular kids. Yeah. They don't have friends, uh, or they or they have one other good friend who's equally, um, you know, who's who's amping up the, the sure. sort of negative behavior, as in Columbine, which started it all, right? So there were two boys who, who. Fed off each other. Fed off of each other. Um, And so I think it is a real warning sign in kids. Uh, And But I'm not, I mean, I think people know this, you know, we're not, and it doesn't mean that a lonely kid is going to become a lone wolf shooter, of course. Uh, But but it does mean that we, we need to take it very seriously and we need to understand how much kind of a sense of social connection helps kids succeed and thrive and sort of gives them a space to do it. And like, for instance, one of the interesting uh, facts I came across in a study and one of the researchers I spoke to, she studies bullying a lot. So that's the other. So one thing is being isolated. Another is actually actively being bullied, right? And, And that is terrible for kids. It's a really awful situation. But her question was, is it better for a kid who is the victim in bullying to have another friend who's also been bullied or or not, right? Does that, do you then just sort of heap on extra abuse because you're both been victims or or is it is it helpful? And what they found is that it is helpful, that shared plight helps. Sure. That, so if two kids can get together who've both been bullied, they will they will be a little more resilient. They will have somebody who understands. That's a one big thing about friendship is you're having one other person. You having one to. other person, somebody who knows what you're going through, yep. can be really important. Um, and but it, I, I think that um, that to the extent parents and teachers can get. So I, I'm not saying that adults should insert themselves too much in kids social lives because a lot of what the kids do <laughs> often makes it worse of course it does um so it requires the adults to be really kind of thoughtful and and careful about how they operate but it is true that first of all we don't always make explicit how important it is to learn to be a good friend and to make friends and maintain friends. Um, and we you know we're always pushing kids to achieve and do all these other things and we're not always kind of talking to them about friendship in the same way that we do the other things that they do. Uh, And so I think we need to do that. I think we need to model as an adult what a good friendship looks like. There are ways that adults can help in small ways, like on a playground. You might assume at school that that some of the the kids who are on the periphery don't want to be included or are being rejected. It's sometimes it's just that they don't know the rules of the game that's being played and that it, the adult would have the ability to kind of just, you know, in a small way, sure. um, take some steps that might help um, bring that kid in. And I, I say that from a study that um, was of kids with autism who were in an inclusive school environment. And, and they did find that that adults making small changes or kids being trained to be what they called ambassadors, you know, so to go out, not looking necessarily for the kids with autism, but looking for any kid who was on their periphery and just kind of making a little bit of an extra effort to bring them Mm -hmm. in, that had a really big effect. And so if parents try to talk to their kids about being, you know, not, um, you you don't have to say that they have to be friends with everyone, because you can't be, as we've said, and you know there's limits to time and attention. But but being kind is not 
there are no limits on kindness, you know? And so, I mean, I think you're talking about a bunch of different things here, but if a kid at school doesn't have friends, maybe they could spend their outside of school hours in activities where they do have kids who have a shared interest, for instance. I mean, I think that adults should be looking for ways, other environments where kids might find, you know, um, sort of soulmates. So what happens in adolescence, specifically in the brain? Let's talk about the changes that are happening and why it's so critical. Yeah, this is so fascinating. And this is really only in the last mm, 10 to 15 years that we now understand that that there's this second burst of activity in brain development in adolescence. Um, so first of all, from a neuroscience point of view, adolescence goes from 10 to 25. So it's not just 13 to 19. Um, which explains a lot, <laughs> I think. Uh, but it, um, so what happens in the brain is that just like when you were very, very young, so your kids' ages, you know, under three, uh, there's a burst of activity in terms of brain cells, um, new brain cells being created, but mostly connections being built between brain cells, so synaptic connections. And then those connections actually get pruned back with experience and that makes your brain more efficient. It makes you better at the things you've just learned to do. Um, and it means that that unnecessary connections, you know, go away and that and are pruned away. The same thing happens, it happens in early childhood and then it happens again in adolescence. But one of the big things that happens in adolescence is that the parts of the brain, mainly the prefrontal cortex and the sort of under the forehead, um, which controls executive function and reasoning and judgment, that is on this kind of steady linear march toward adulthood and maturity. But and and it doesn't the the trajectory doesn't change in adolescence. But what does is the limbic system in the brain, which really um, has a lot to do with emotion and fear and anxiety. That jumps up it becomes overactive it's sort of there's a there's a, a gap in the developmental force kind of right and so your emotional part of your brain is in overdrive and your judgment part of the brain is still just kind of plodding along and learning how to do things better but so the map that neuroscientists make is it shows this gap where the one jumps up over the other and then sort of comes back down eventually and meets it. But the, they point with an arrow like to that little thing and they say, adolescence right here. So that's why emotion is such a big part of adolescence. It's why we feel things so intensely. You actually are feeling them more intensely as a teenager than you are as an adult. And it's why you remember them more too, sure. right? <laughs> so you mentioned being a teenager and, and you talk about this in the book, the power of peers. And, and like, I, I, I go back in time and I had this fortunate and that we had a very big social group, like 20, 30 of us. Oh, wow, right. Like we were all sort of, we hung out and just imagine, you know, this is early 90s, uh, too much alcohol. And it like we did such, going back, I'm just like amazed by some of the incredibly stupid things we did. And these were all, you know, I grew up in upper middle class. I grew up in Manhasset, Long Island, mm -hmm. good public high school. Everyone went on to like decent colleges right, and just fared right. well in life. Although some of, some of my friends are now sober. <laughs> A couple unfortunately aren't with us anymore. Oh. But uh, at any rate, like I, I can remember, you know, someone would have an idea, be incredibly stupid. And then the next person would say like, that's amazing. And next thing you know, 20 to 25, it's just like the power that. of the peer group. And no one was bad right like these right. weren't we weren't bad kids it was just the power of like hey this sounds incredibly fun let's 
and, and do it. And what's so interesting? So it turns out we always have thought of that. College, right? Not. Exactly. No, exactly. You. But so one thing is that from an evolutionary point of view, we now understand that that kind of behavior, stupid though it seems at the time, uh, is it makes sense because teenagers are supposed to be kind of testing limits and taking some risks because that's what it is to leave the safety of your home and your parents. And it's true in other species as well. Adolescents tend to go spend a whole lot more time with same age, you know, adolescent, adolescent rhesus macaques spend more time with other adolescent <laughs> rhesus macaques. And then, and they go, you know, they, they take some risks and things. And so it turns out that, that, that that is teenagers that's, you know, practicing what it is they're going to need to do. And then the peer part, what I think is interesting, and it's it's sort of subtle, but it turns out that it's not so much about peer pressure, which is the term we've all been using all this time, as just literally the presence of the peers, yes. right? And what it does is it it triggers the reward centers in your brain when you're when you know your friends are nearby, and and that means that you start to eat, that helps you lose sight of the of the, yeah, the yeah. you know the ramifications, the consequences I'm potentially glad you of what you pointed that do. out between pressure pressure and presence because. You know, I don't remember every stupid thing we did, but many often times it was, okay, let's do it. Let's all go. Right, because here we all are. Yeah, and the, you wouldn't and, do it. If it had just been you exactly. sitting there by yourself, and, you wouldn't and no have one it. raised their hand and said, no, this isn't a good idea. Or like, I don't know if we should do it. It was like, all right. We're right, all in. Right, right. And presumably there were some people who might have been thinking, I wonder if this I'm is sure a good I, idea. I did, I did on you, certain <laughs> occasions. It was like, oh, let's go. Let's yeah, do it. No, and it turns out, for instance, that, that teenagers, I mean, sadly, this is one explains one of the things that happens is like if a teenager is driving a car and they have other friends in the car, oh. they will go faster and take more risks than, uh, than, um, uh, than they do if they're alone in the car. And adults, that's not the case anymore. It, so I had a friend uh, when I was a teenager. I wasn't in the vehicle, but uh, essentially was pulled pulled over for driving under the influence. And there were other friends in the car, and the, the and they thought it was a good idea. Like let's let's go. Let's yeah. Let's outrun the police officer <laughs> and everyone. And so I'll never forget the parent of the of of the friend who who ended up you know yeah. going to jail. On, uh, but no one was hurt and right. very, okay. very lucky. Don't want to make light of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, said, you know, was, was saying to one of the friends, like, you know, what did he do wrong here? And he said, you know, in all truth, we all thought it was a good idea. Yeah. And that's that thing of like when parents say, what <laughs> just were you the insanity. thinking? So right, it right, wasn't right. necessarily just the driver's fault. Everyone in the car in the thought car. it was a good well, idea. It was good of the friend to admit so to he that. He said it like 10 years later. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh. <laughs> the truth comes out. He said it like 10 truth, years later. But the, the takeaway for this for adults is that, because the, the other really important point is though, peers can also be an influence for good. Right, yes. the presence of peers can turn out to be a beneficial thing. Depends what it is that they're suggesting you do. If they're suggesting we should all study for this test, you know, which so, happens, that's not an impossibility. So let's know? close on the positive yeah. note. Okay. How can we become, you know, better friends in terms of you know being being positive, but you know, not sugarcoating everything, you know, being positive yet being real in terms of adults and also like with kids and helping nourish kids to to be that friend we wish maybe we were when we were younger. I think it begins with understanding just how important friendship is and then prioritizing it in that way. If you're a parent, you're doing that by both sending the message to your kids that this matters and understanding that they're not going to 
they're not going to come right out of the gate being really good at it. They need it's a skill that grows and changes over time. And so, um, so we need to tell kids that. I mean, actually, a really important stat we didn't mention is that two thirds of kids from September to June of sixth grade change friends. And I think wow. for sixth graders knowing that, just knowing that, an adult being able to say, you know what, this is so normal. Like, I think that would help, right? So that's what adults can do is be sort of looking at the big picture. And then for kids, they can be modeling. I said this before, model that friendship matters in your life and that, you know, it's, it's. and then as an adult, same thing, prioritize this, you know, act like it matters because it does. Um, on some levels, it gives you permission to hang out with your friends uh, in a way. I mean, I, I think rather than the to-do list, but we all, lots of us, like very carefully schedule in time to exercise, you know, but we don't schedule in time to be with our friends in the same way. And okay, maybe you can get the twofer. You can schedule the walk or the run with your friend. Then that in even, nature, better even yet. better, even better, right? <laughs> that's not just a twofer. That's a threefer, right? But, um, but but just be aware that this is that important and it's worth your time and and how lucky are you that 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 hanging out with your friend is that now of course right now like we said social distancing is important so you're going to have to do it a little bit more virtually perhaps but but that doesn't mean that this isn't something that we should all be thinking about um, long term and making a majorly important part of our lives amen to that lydia thank you so much thank you 